amazing words. All we have is Christ. Is that us as a church? All we have is Christ? It's quite a thing to say, really, isn't it? If you put in the place of Christ something else. All I have is an iPad. That's okay, you know. I don't have clothes and no food, but I've got an iPad, so everything's fine. All I have is an iPad. Who is this Jesus that we can say, sing, all I have is Christ, and that be not just enough, but more than enough? Well, we're going to discover uh, this morning as we look in the Bible. Well, let's get down to work. I'm going to undress a little bit. Don't worry, I'm not going to go any further. I don't know about you, but when I look at the news, you know, I go to CNN or Fox News or some blog or other, and I read about some issue that's going on in the world, it challenges my worldview sometimes. I read about something, and then I think, what is this world in which we live? What is this place? What is going on? For instance, there's a recent incident that did this for me. You may have heard about it. Uh, There is a news story out there which may or may not be entirely accurate and I think is a little bit um, not controversial, but certainly doubted by some, but it illustrates the issue. A medical man apparently has smuggled out of Syria, where there's a serious strife, smuggled out of Syria a a, a set of photographic evidence that purports to prove, and again, I'm sure there are people who do not think this is the case, but I'm just telling the news story, purports to prove that 11,000 people in Syria have been killed. Well, not just just killed, and in all likelihood, a lot more than 11,000 people have been killed in Syria in recent months and years, but this photographic evidence purports to prove that 11,000 people have been tortured before being killed. I think it was uh, Stalin who said that a, a single death is a tragedy and millions of deaths, that's a statistic. Well, break down that 11,000 people into people. What kind of world is this? Maybe it's something closer to home for you, relative with cancer. What kind of world is this in which we live? In American history, there have been a number of incidents that have brought these or similar sort of questions to people's minds. They've shook their worldview for the older generation... I think for many of them it was Vietnam. 1950s, everything seemed to be fine, and then Vietnam came along and it just blew apart their worldview. What kind of world is this? That these kind of things happen. For those who were growing up in the 90s, I think perhaps it was Bill Clinton's, I did not have relations with that woman and that dress. And it just 
changed their perspective, their understanding. It questioned their worldview. What kind of world is this? Well, recently 9-11 and its aftermath, the weapons of mass destruction, people take over a plane and use it as a missile to fly into a couple of towers kind of world is this? And again, it may be something closer to home for you, but I, I, I ask myself these sort of questions, and I suspect you do too. Fortunately, the Bible has an answer. Unfortunately, in recent years, the church has often been rather slow to declare it for reasons we shall consider. The Bible's answer is Romans 1 verse 18, and in its context, page 939 in the Bibles and the Rex in front of you or beneath your seat if you happen to be brave enough to sit within spitting distance of the preacher on the front row. It's introducing a chapter, that uh, section that runs from chapter 3 uh, up until chapter 3, verse 20. It's perhaps some of the most important words in the world today. It's describing life as it is, and it's giving the explanation for why it is as it is. And the aim this morning is that we would, through this passage, be moved to be able to say, all I have is Christ, and to live in that light, to joyfully accept the truth of Christ, and therefore live wholeheartedly for Christ. To do that, we've got to get who God is. And who we are, and therefore we will understand exactly what it is that Christ has done. Here's the verse. Let me read it for us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What a verse. It's teaching us two things, and we'll see if we can cover them both this morning. First... Who God is. I'm stepping back. In order to contextualize, to understand, to appreciate what Paul is writing, we have to understand his assumptions about who God is. And obviously when we read about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven, those who grew up in America will immediately think of hellfire preaching and particularly Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But actually what is interesting about that sermon is that the fact that Edwards preached the wrath of God was not what made him stick out at the time. It was common then to preach the wrath of God. They had a whole literature called Jeremiads. The reason it sticks out for us now is that it is so uncommon today. Why is that? Well, we need to understand who God is. In particular, we need to understand that biblically, God is a God of wrath and not just a God of love. Of course, love is a very important and precious truth about God and is one that we are to believe and hold on to. But if we only preach that God is love, we will distort who God is. God's love will become permissiveness to do whatever we want. God will become a grand Santa Claus in the sky who benignly pats us on the head and smiles at us. 
Well, the God of the Bible is very different from this. What is more, if we do not have a fuller grasp of who God is, we will actually not be able to truly appreciate God's love anyway. If we really want to have and appreciate the love of God, we need to understand God's wrath. Otherwise, it makes no sense. I mean, after all, when you say to someone today, God loves you, what they are thinking is, well, sure, who wouldn't? It is not a big deal to them because they do not understand the wrath of God. And actually then, if we are to be a church that revels and enjoys the love of Jesus, we need to be a church that truly holds on to the wrath of God. Evangelistic effectiveness begins here too. People do not come to accept the love of God. They think the love of God is what they deserve anyway. It has no bite. It gives no compelling reason for response. This motivates mission too, massively, when we understand the wrath of God. This gives us a reason to go to the ends of the earth. It motivates godliness and holiness as well, of course, for this God is a holy God. But how do we then understand the God who is this God of wrath? Well, he is a God of wrath and not just a God of love. Let me explain that to us. One, God is a God who is currently acting against evil and sin. This wrath of God is revealed. It is happening now. It is not only about the future, though it would be revealed there in all its terrible fear as well, but it is right now too. Paul here is emphasizing the present revelation of God's wrath. As the gospel of righteousness by faith is revealed, as Paul preaches that gospel, verse 17, so also at the same time, the truth of the world today, this worldview, what is going on in our world, is that God is currently acting against evil and sin. That is also being revealed. What does that mean? It means that God is punishing sin. How, you say? How is God punishing sin? How is he... His wrath being revealed. Well, Paul will tell us one way that we'll explore more in subsequent weeks, that God is giving people over to their sins. This means that one way God's wrath is being revealed is that he lets people sin and suffer the consequences for that sin. People sometimes complain, God's letting people get away with their sins. He's not letting them get away with their sins. He's giving them over to their sins. Sin is an expression of God's wrath. Sin has consequences, sometimes even physical. If a person drinks too much, they will have a headache. If a person eats too much and does not exercise all their life, there may well be certain physical consequences, etc. That's all part of the order of the world which God has created, an expression of His revelation of His wrath. But it's also revealed in our conscience The way God has made us is that we recognize there is a right and there is a wrong. We all do. We can disagree over what is right and what is wrong. But we all recognize that there is right and there is wrong. But more than that, we also recognize that what is wrong should be punished. So there is a great conference going on in Switzerland right now to try to deal with all the wrongs that have been uh, happening in Syria. And we have judges and courts We expect there to be justice. We want those who do wrong to be punished as long as it is not us who have done wrong. (laughs) 
It's revealed in our conscience. It's revealed in the consequences of our sin. It's revealed throughout the history of the world. And this is Paul's grand point in these chapters. Everyone, Jew and Gentiles, failed to keep God's law. And so he concludes in chapter 3 that the whole world is held accountable to God. And the law shows us that we have broken the law. It's not just that we do little sins. It's that we are sinners. We are opposed to God's righteous requirements in his law. And this is the history of the world. And God's wrath is being revealed against it. In the Bible, ever since Adam and Eve fell, we read the story of the consequences of jealousy with Cain and Abel, with family squabbles and squabbles and plurality of marriages and adultery with the patriarchs, with David's sin against Bathsheba, and then amazingly with Israel itself being sent into exile. And all this is a revelation of God's wrath. And the same is true in the history of the world, not recorded in the Bible. We're not given the same divine insight into what happens infallibly. We cannot infallibly determine what is an expression of God's wrath. But we are told that righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a rebuke to any people. And so we read in our history books that an empire rises and it falls. Evil's allowed to get so far and then God intervenes. And Hitler is left to commit suicide in a small ramshackle shelter when before he had seemed to rule the world. God will not let sin go unpunished. It is being revealed. This God is a God who is currently active against evil and sin. That is simply part of understanding who this God is that we worship. But then also, too, this God who is God is having his wrath revealed from heaven. That is, it is by God's authority. God has the right to judge. This is not a rage from a human against another human. This is not a sudden intemperate rant. This is not God losing his cool or getting annoyed or finally blowing off steam and flying into a temper. This is God's wrath revealed from heaven. It is his set opposition to all evil and sin. In other words, this God who is God is holy. His character is opposed to all evil and sin. It is his standard, resolute, current response. You find it taught throughout Romans. The word wrath comes in seven different occasions in the book of Romans. Chapter 2, verse 5. The day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is a coming day when his wrath will be fully expressed and finally revealed. To believe in God's wrath is to believe in eternal punishment. For God is infinite and holy and logically, therefore, to deny eternal punishment is either to deny his holiness or his infinity. God's wrath is infinite for he is infinite just as his love is infinite. And the solution to that problematic equation is revealed at the cross. And so how great a salvation that would save us from this. How much we need to learn to appreciate that salvation and so commit our lives to follow Jesus with determination and depth and passion and sacrifice. The one who loved me to rescue me from the day of wrath. How much then am I to give my life to him? Well, again, in Romans verse 8, those who do not obey righteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. Chapter 3, verse 5, shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Which Paul answers with, by no means, because God is God and his truth is truth. Or chapter 4, verse 15, the law brings wrath. 
When we break the law, our consciences show us that we deserve wrath. Or chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now how wonderful is this salvation? How much it demands my total commitment. Chapter 12, verse 19, don't take judgment out on others, don't seek vengeance, but leave it to the wrath of God. Now, as a very important side note, let me mention how in our society today, because wrath is not taught or believed, even sometimes in church circles, we become a society that seeks vengeance. Our obsession with vengeance, with TV programs, one called Revenge is a precise result of our lack of belief that there will be an ultimate expression of justice. If you want a society where there is no revenge, you need to preach the cross and hell. All sin will be punished, either at the cross or in hell. And we need to leave it to the wrath of God. How important that is to do in church life. To let bygones be bygones because God will judge and it will either be expressed at the cross or in hell. Or well, chapter 13, verse 4, even the civil authorities are agents of God's wrath. And so punishment in our society is an expression, however imperfectly, and it is very imperfect. I'm sure it was in Rome of God's set opposition to evil and injustice. How Paul harps on this theme, and how seldom we mention it in church life. We talk about church and how to do church and structures of committees and leadership meetings, and Paul mentions the word church only in Romans 16, as if by the side while he's giving greetings. And the wrath of God is a theme that runs throughout the book of Romans. For without our understanding about that, we cannot truly appreciate the cross. For where is the perfect revelation of God's wrath at the cross? It is where God poured out His wrath upon His own person in Christ. When you forgive someone, you have to take the pain within you. God in Christ is reconciling the world to Himself by bearing the pain of forgiveness. Even that most famous verse teaches us this, John 3.16, the little Bible, as Danish Christians call it, for God so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. The wrath of God. Now, this is the clear witness of the Bible, the witness of our conscience, the witness of consequences to our sin, the witness of the history of the world, and it's declared ultimately the cross, the very center of the Christian faith. Why then do we hear so little about it? Well, I'm afraid we're embarrassed by the Bible's teaching of the wrath of God. Unbelievers object most specifically to this idea, of course. For them, we're saying that there is accountability. They feel their conscience. There is a sense of God. They recognize the consequences. They observe the history of the world, but they do not want to hear about wrath. And so the church responds in one of two ways. Those Christians who still follow Jesus, but will call themselves liberal Christians, just abandon the idea. They say it's an old idea for Paul. He was just expressing his Pharisaic hangover from before his conversion. But we have now moved on and we know better. 
Well, those Christians who still believe the Bible still believe the wrath of God. But even among groups that will call themselves evangelicals, this note of the wrath of God is seldom sounded. Why? Because we have geared up our ministries to win people by providing them nice, warm, fuzzy feelings. And so the prosperity gospel makes headway in the two-thirds world among people with very little. And the church promises them prosperity, and of course they respond in our situation where people are already prosperous in terms of the world's standards and comparatively across the globe, what then does the church offer? What do you offer someone who's already fairly well off and doing okay financially? And the answer is that you offer them feel-good sensibility. You advertise the church as a place of uh, sentimental, nice, cuddly feelings. It's a place where everyone will give you a hug and tell you how great you are. Now, I enjoy a hug as much as the next man, which perhaps is not that much. (laughs) But we present ourselves, don't we, friends, to the world as a place where our message is, we will make you feel good. And we don't preach perhaps the prosperity gospel, we preach the therapeutic version of the same. And so everything gets skewed towards a horizontal incorporation of community. When the great need of our world today is not for racial reconciliation, as important as that is, not for class breaking down of barriers, for we are all one in Christ, important as that is, the great need is to be one in Christ, to be reconciled to God, and then we'll be reconciled to each other. And perhaps I hear someone saying, oh, this is just Paul. Well, have we not read what Jesus said about hell? Fear not, people, fear the one who has power to cast you into hell, Luke 12, 45. You think Sodom and Gomorrah got it bad? Well, those who refuse to repent when they encounter Jesus will have it far worse on the day of judgment, Matthew eleven twenty-four. 24. And this is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not put out in hell, Mark 9, 48. In short, our God is a consuming fire and not just a God of nice, cuddly, lovely feelings. And indeed, we can only understand, appreciate, and respond to His love, which is as deep as the ocean. when we understand who He is more fully and completely. We can only really appreciate verse 17 of chapter 1 when we believe verse 18. Who God is, or more briefly then, who we are. Paul says that this wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This, of course, is who we are. Paul is saying that we are sinners, not just patients 
All this ungodliness and unrighteousness that we suppress the truth about, this is us. This is who we are. Now, this is greatly resisted today. In fact, you might well now be resisting it, but this is the point of what Paul is saying. It is part of our condition, not just that we have ungodliness and unrighteousness, but that also we will go to quite extraordinary lengths to avoid this truth. People say it's just a psychological description. That the reason why we talk about this is because we've left over guilt from our childhood against some father figure, and therefore we have this psychological hang-up, and we project it onto the ultimate father figure. Or they say it's just an expression of class warfare or control of lower echelons of society. Will you observe that uh, Paul says that God's wrath is against what we actually do? It's against our ungodliness and unrighteousness. Paul there, I think, is referring to the Ten Commandments, which are broken up into two tablets, the one expressing our worship to God, godliness, and the other our love towards neighbor, righteousness. And both of those tablets we break. Or as Jesus summarized it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in both those basic orientations of life, we have failed. It is against what we actually do. It's also what we actually know. This is what Paul means when he says we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He is saying that we know that God is real. We know that God is true. This is the great argument of his next two verses that we'll look at in subsequent weeks But it's important to realize that Paul is building towards this. He is saying that within every single one of us, there is what Calvin called a sense of God. We know this truth. This is not something about which we have to be argued into like a series of logical steps. This is something that is actually immediately clear to us, like when you see the sun and you know it is light. It's part of the hard wiring of the human person that we're made in the image of God, and therefore we know that God is real, true. We have a sense of God, and that sense is distorted and repressed and suppressed. But there's never been a single human society discovered anywhere on the face of the whole planet which has not had a basically religious origin and disposition, and it's constantly suppressed. So the worship of God becomes strange. We worship the creation our gifts and material possessions rather than the Creator. And that's Paul's great argument in this subsequent section, as we will see. And here he's simply saying we actually know this truth. We have a conscience. We understand right and wrong. We want wrongs to be punished. We argue about who is right. And we suppress the truth by claiming to be little gods ourselves. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, the same pattern in human nature, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. This is who we are. This is who God is. And this is why we need the gospel. During uh, the Second World War in Europe, a Lutheran pastor named Helmut Tierlicki was preaching in Stuttgart. That city was being bombed And the pastor was very uh, depressed about the situation. He was walking the streets one day, and he came across the remains of a house where over 50 people had been killed. And as he was staring at this spot, a woman came up to him and asked him whether he was the pastor. She didn't recognize him when he said he was. uh, She said this to him, 
my husband died down there. His place was right under the hole. The cleanup squad was unable to find a trace of him. All that was left was his cap. And then she carried on. We were there the last time you preached in the cathedral church. And here before this pit, I want to thank you for preparing him for eternity. Are you prepared for eternity? I have a gospel that can prepare you for that great eventuality. But it is of no use to you if you hold it at a distance and say, this is something I grew up with and I have no interest in it anymore. That will not help you on that day. It is of no use to you if you suppress the truth in unrighteousness and say, I will have nothing to do with this Jesus. He is old-fashioned. I am moving forward. That will not help you when you move forward to that day. There is only one solution to this conundrum, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ where God's wrath was perfectly and finally and infinitely expressed in one person, God Himself, who shut out all the darkness of sin and evil that light in your life might enter in if you bow the knee and worship Him. Are you prepared for eternity? Many of us here are. And with a fresh, I trust, appreciation for the wrath of God, which the gospel of God saves us from, We walk out those doors saying, all I have is Christ, and my hands are full to overflowing. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we do pray that by your Spirit, you would fill our hearts with your grace and mercy and favor, that as we uh, sing in a moment about the holiness of God, we would remember the holy sacrifice of God in Christ. And so be able to rejoice that we, the unholy, 
can have a close fellowship and communion with you who is holy because of the Holy One who shed his blood for us. Lord Jesus, we also pray that uh, each of us here would indeed be prepared for eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.